I titled today's sermon, Serving Through Submission. When you think of the word submit, what comes to your mind? you get a, a mental image in your head? The definition of the word submit is to accept or yield to a superior force or authority of another. I think the problem with understanding submission is that we as sinful people are in this constant state of, of wanting to be in control, of, of wanting autonomy. Of, we looked at that in Sunday school this morning, that Satan's original lie to Eve was that she would have her eyes open and she would be like God. And that ever since then, we've all wanted to be like God. And then when we think of submission... It means that we are, are willingly giving away that right. We're probably what really brings a distasteful thought into people's minds is that part of that definition of yielding. You know, when you come to a, a fork in a road and you have a, a yield sign, you have to, if there's another car coming, you have to let them have the right of way. When I think of yield, I more think of wrestling with friends in, in high school. I, I was never on the wrestling team, but if, if we were messing around on the football field waiting for practice to start, if you got pinned, you have to yell, I yield! <laughs> you know, your arms behind your, I yield! <laughs> you get forced into that submission by someone who is, is stronger than you are. And none of us want to feel that way. But I think it's important to understand submission one of the best ways we can understand that is looking at examples. So when we look at the Christmas story and think about, last week we looked at how Mary and Joseph served God despite their, the obvious fears that they would have had of people, of their community, of their family. The fear of man should not deter us from serving God. And this week we're looking at how submission fits with serving God, and we'll be looking at how Jesus being born was him submitting to the will of the Father, that Jesus in coming to this earth was following God's plan. We looked at that some time ago in Ephesians 1 as, as Paul lays out throughout the first chapter all of these things that are bringing glory to God. They are all God's plans for our redemption. And that Jesus was a part of that plan, and he carried it out. And so if we think, if, if our goal as Christians, as it should be, if we are disciples of Christ, we should be becoming more like Christ. And so following his example is the best that we can follow. And so we need to look at, at how he works with the Father in following his plans and submitting to his plans. And as we look at this, Look at the, the big idea is that God's, we look at this in light of Christmas. I think this is important in understanding submission. Because when we think of it in human terms, we think of this forced servitude. But we worship a God of love. John 3.16 tells us that it was God's love that sent Jesus to the earth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him on Christmas day and so that is christmas is really about god's love and him giving us this gift god's love is clearly evident in the birth of christ and that should drive us to willing submission in imitation of christ 
God's love is clearly evident in the birth of Christ, and that should drive us to willing submission and imitation of Christ. Your bulletin says select scriptures. I had several places I was going to go. I decided to limit it to just Philippians 2, although we'll glance at a few others, but I was trying to bite off way more than I could chew. There's enough in Philippians 2 to keep us plenty busy as we look at this, this beautiful explanation of Jesus and his coming to earth and why he went to the cross. So we'll be looking at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 14, or through 13, excuse me. As we look at this 5 to 8, we see Jesus' submission. Verses 9 to 11, we see God's plan. In verses 12 and 13, we, Paul really provides us with the application. Verses 12 and 13, we see that we need to live this out. And again, God's love is clearly evident in the birth of Christ, and that should drive us to willing submission in imitation of Christ. I'll read the passage, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the example of Christ that we have. God, that he has shown you clearly to the world. Thank you for his submission. Help us to learn from it. That if Jesus, who is God, internal God himself, can submit, that so can we. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we start in verse 5 where, where Paul gives this command or exhortation for them to have the same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In the context, which you're probably familiar with, he starts off chapter 2 uh, with this pleading of all that they had experienced as believers. If it had meant anything to them, then this. If the new life that you have been given in Jesus Christ through God's Spirit means something. If this new fellowship in the church has brought new joy to your life, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but this is the ideas that he is getting at, that to think of, of what becoming a believer has meant to you and harness that so that you can have the same attitude in you that was in Jesus Christ. As I said, we, we learn best from illustrations, and there is no better illustration than Jesus Christ for us as we seek to become more like him, and that is what Paul is doing here. He often, in his writings, will use himself as an illustration, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate 
goal of what we were striving for. And he wants them to know that the very things that he wants to see grow in their lives is exactly the attitude that Jesus had. She explains in verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to to be grasped. He is showing Jesus' pre-incarnate state as being fully God. Just as we read in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is, in a very Greek philosophical way, showing Jesus' eternality and his equality with God, and that he was God. And as what Paul is doing here, he's presenting it in this way of humility that although he has existed forever as God, equal with God the Father, that he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. The word for form here refers to an outward appearance that accurately reveals the inward nature. I thought this was interesting because there's, there's two words in the Greek for form. This one is morphe. The other one is schema. Schema is an outward appearance that changes as a result of time and circumstances. Like when I look at pictures of myself five years ago, and I'm, wow, <laughs> the last five years has been rough. <laughs> and then 10 years ago, oh my goodness. Eric and I got married 15 years ago, so we got engaged 16 years ago, and we have this, we did these engagement photos, and I look at them and I'm like, we were babies. <laughs> and we were in our mid-20s, but I still I look back and go, I don't remember being that young. <laughs> But that isn't what this is. This isn't Jesus existing in one form and time changing his appearance. No, it's how he was existing as God was what you see is what you get, if that makes sense. His inward nature was revealed by his outward appearance, and his appearance was being as God. The equal with God is that as we understand the Trinity— is what he's laying out for us here, that Jesus is not less than God the Father. I think that is important to remember. That when we look at the Trinity, it is not that, that God is the Father is the most powerful. Jesus is also God, but, you know, he's, he's right here. And the Spirit, well, you know, he's sent out by, by Jesus to us, and so they are all equal. They are the same. They are three different people, persons, but they are equal within the Godhead. They are all equally God. I think that to use an illustration that we're going to use it as an illustration is teaching in Ephesians 5 that we'll get to when Paul says that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. He is not in any way saying that a wife is less than her husband because you could never say that Jesus is less than God. And yet Jesus submitted to the Father which is what he brings out there in saying that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't need to grasp equality with God. He had it because he is God. He has always existed as God. 
I think as I go back to what I was talking about at the beginning and what we think of when we think of submission, often submitting or yielding to someone else reveals our own insecurities. That I have to prove who I am and I could never submit myself to that person because I don't like them or they're unfair or they are unjust. But Jesus had no, none of those insecurities. And out of the humility that is part of who he is, this attitude that Paul is yearning for them to develop, he was not in that mindset of having to, to hold on to or grasp at that equality. And while this does not... The text here doesn't relate to directly to Adam and Eve. I think it is a perfect contrast in that Adam had no equality with God, and yet in eating the fruit and believing that lie that he was grasping at that equality with God. And for Jesus, who had it, was willing to release it. He became a man by... He wasn't focused on holding on to that or being the one in charge, but being willing to release that, which he explains in verse 7. He says, But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Instead of forever, eternally maintaining his former manner of existence in the appearance of God, it says that he emptied himself. Another translation says that he made himself nothing. Sort of a paraphrase of this is that he laid aside his privileges. Uh, from the Greek word, we get what is, is termed as the kenosis, which is the word here literally means to pour out, that he poured himself out when he became a man. It's important in understanding this, that when Jesus became a man at the incarnation, when Mary conceived at that moment, Jesus took on full humanity. And when it says he emptied himself, he did not give up any part of being God, that he became fully God and fully man. One of those concepts that if I spend too long trying to think of it, you'll see the smoke come out of my ears. And, but I believe it because Jesus was fully man and he showed that through his life, through his death. And he was fully God, which he showed through the perfection that he lived his life in and his resurrection. Without taking too much time, I'm trying. I think the easiest way to understand it is that, like I said, that he laid aside his privileges, is that he still possessed every power and authority of being eternal God, but that he became dependent on the Father and the Spirit in becoming fully man in his life on earth. That he did not come here as just fully God to, to judge, but he, he came as fully God and fully man to save us. And he laid those things aside. He emptied himself in such a way that, that did not make him less than God in any way, but he became dependent on God and in following his will. And was found in the likeness of men or taking on the form of bond slave, a slave, being found in the likeness of men, that, you know, think of it like a, 
I'm not God. I can't create anything. I don't know what it would be like to, to have a created being and have them disobey me and rebel. And you know, your dog disobeys you, pees on the rug. Uh, I wouldn't ever want to become a dog to teach my dog to not do that. That illustration is so weak in compared to Jesus being in the form of God and yet willing to take on one of these forever so that he could save me. To be God and yet have the humility to allow himself to be found in the form of a bondservant or a slave and in the likeness of man. As we read in John, he was the person of the Godhead who created all things came into being through him. And yet he was willing to do this, to become like us. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate submission. We can't fully grasp, I don't think we come close to grasping what this would be like. I was trying to think of illustrations this week, and none of them came close. A few years ago, Eric and I watched several episodes of this show called Undercover Boss. We'd have these multi-millionaire CEOs of companies, you know, in the back of a fast food restaurant running the fryer and having some low-level manager yelling at them for not doing their job correctly. Uh, you know, to not just reveal themselves in that moment and turn on that person and say, do you know who I am? Hang about that with Jesus. And when the Pharisees were telling him that, and what are you doing healing on the Sabbath? I invented the Sabbath. <laughs> you know, but he didn't. Because he was humble and he was obedient in submission to God's plan. God's plan to redeem the creation that they had made that, Jesus specifically as the person that God had that had made creation who is now living in this creation that was fallen and separated from him by sin that he was willing to be God's plan to redeem that creation back to himself and he did it and it started as being born not into a palace not into any kind of power his parents couldn't even get a hotel room he was, he was born in a stable and laid in a manger, the eternal God of the universe. Why am I not willing to submit? I have, there is nothing special about me. He had everything special about him. And yet he was willing to do that. Move on to the next couple of verses where we see God's plan in all of this. And his plan doesn't just stop at redemption, as we looked at in Ephesians 1, as Paul repeats, to the glory of God the Father. That This plan brings him glory, which he then bestows upon the Son. Verses 9 and 10. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been given this name. You know, what's, what's in a name? I think I've told you guys this story before. 
my grandpa loved to put his name on everything. I think it, it came from working at the funeral home, and so you know, all of our cars, all the funeral coaches had these metal placards in the windows that said Rutherford on them. The buildings all said Rutherford on them. He had flags that said Rutherford on them. We had some folks over for Thanksgiving last month. I still had a, a stack of napkins left that have this R insignia with Rutherford below it. There was one time when he was upset at me, and I was just trying to tell him what happened, and I mentioned this other employee, and he grabbed me by the shirt collar and drug me to the window so I could look at the sign out front. He said, whose name does it say on that sign? You know, the, the world that Paul was writing this into, the Roman Empire, I mean, there, there were different stratas. Uh, the vast, vast majority of the empire lived in poverty, and had no wealth or, or authority, but they understood that authority structure. And to those that were, were born into it or had it or were given it, there was great honor in that. And he is presenting to them that Jesus is given the name above every other name. And when you follow that with at the name of at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I mean, you could think that throughout the Roman Empire, the emperor was worshipped as a god. But they knew full well that not every knee bowed and every tongue confessed. That in every province through every age of the Roman Empire, there were rebellions that needed to be quashed. And people fighting against the empire. And outside forces fighting against the empire. And the empire fighting tooth and nail to expand. And it isn't going to be like that for Jesus. The name that he has been given, just at the sound of it, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I think in the, the description here, what, he, what he's pointing at is uh, the millennial kingdom. You remember we went through Revelation, the, the, the resurrection of the dead who do not believe in Christ does not happen until after the millennial kingdom. And here we get this description of those on the earth and those in heaven and those under the earth that, that when Jesus comes the end of the tribulation to judge the earth and to sit on David's throne that from that moment on every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and Satan will come back and lead one more rebellion and Jesus is going to quash it and for all of eternity he will sit on David's throne God having given him that throne and that authority and that honor which in turn brings glory to himself the picture we're given, as I brought up in Jesus' submission and being equal to God, is this perfectly reciprocal relationship with the Father and the Son. And it is because of God's good plans. When I was in college, it was the summer of 2002, or not summer, Christmas 2002, I flew home from school, and it had been a, a really hard semester and I was worn out. And I got home, and I got to be home for a day and a half, and we had to fly to Ohio for one of my cousin's weddings. And my dad was always the master of these grand schemes and plans. And so the way this worked was we, the, the really cheap flights were from LAX. And so we drove an hour and 20 minutes up to LA to the airport, and we parked our car at one of those really far-out lots for a couple bucks a day. We flew to Ohio for like five days for my cousin's wedding, and then we flew back. We didn't drive the hour and 20 minutes home. 
we took those suitcases to the van and got our skis and went back into the airport. Back then, they had like $25 flights from LA to Salt Lake. So we fly up to Salt Lake and we skied for a couple days. And then we flew back to LA. And my mom and my sister took the van home. Dad and I went and grabbed an overnight bag from the van and took another $25 flight to Phoenix so that we could see Ohio State play in the national championship game against Miami. I wanted to do all of these things, but I've always been kind of a homebody. And so for me, after this busy semester, all I wanted was rest, and my dad's plans were all go, go, go. And I remember at several steps along the process, grumbling and moping. But you know what? It was a wonderful time with my family, getting to be in Ohio for my cousin's wedding, getting to go skiing with my mom and dad and sister. She got married that next summer, and so that was sort of our last trip together doing that before marriages and kids. And, and then that, that game, I don't know, it was one of the most incredible games I've ever been to, and I got to experience that with my dad. And I remember flying home that last leg, I was so tired. But I remember thanking Dad. And it took some humility to finally creep into my heart to realize that it had been a good plan. And that he had worked hard all year and that he had saved money so that we could do these things together. He had other friends that skied. He could have gone skiing without me. He wouldn't have had to pay for his friend's lift ticket. He had to pay for mine. He wanted it to do it with me. And there I was complaining. Think of how wonderful and magnificent and amazing God's plans are. And how often I grumble and complain as I am walking through them. But Jesus could see the end, but he still had to walk that life. He still had to give up being found in the image of God and being found like me. He still had to live a life that included discomfort and pain and hunger. The world that he created hating him. It's interesting there at the beginning of John that we read, John says he came into the world and the world did not know him. When John quotes Jesus in the upper room discourse, Jesus clearly says, you know, if the world hates you, it hated me before you. <laughs> he made this world. He made all of us. And yet the world hated him. And he had to go to the cross. And he had to endure physical pain that is beyond what I can imagine and a spiritual pain of being separated from the Father that we can't even comprehend. And yet he did all of it in willing submission because he knew his Father's plan was a good plan. And lastly, our, our last point is that we live it out. Verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. These Christians in Philippi that he's writing to had been obedient to the Lord in serving him in the past. When Paul was with them, and even though he was no longer with them, that he heard that they had continued to be obedient. And because of what Jesus had done, he is pushing them to continue that obedience. The Greek word that's translated obey, it contains the idea of hearing and submitting to what is heard. 
looked at, uh, it isn't that word, it is a similar word we were looking at in the, the men's Bible study on Thursday morning. It was talking about investigating and acting on the investigation. This is very similar, but it's hearing and acting on what you've heard. For the investigating, I use the, the example that one of my, my least favorite thing to do around the house is anything to do with plumbing because it always puts me in uncomfortable places and I get water dripped on me. I just don't like it. My second is electrical because I always end up shocking myself. It seems almost inevitable. And so now I carry this little thing that's about the size of a pen and, and I put it to a wire and I press the button and if the electric's still hot, it lights up and beeps at me. And if I did that and still grabbed the wire, well then I'm, I deserve what I get. Similar to, this word is very similar to that, and like it's like a child going for a hot stove, and there's a parent yelling, don't touch, it's hot. And the child is looking at you going, <laughs> he is urging them in what he is telling them, in that what they know of Jesus Christ, in his example, to hear what God has been revealing to them, and to obey, to act on it. They have done it in the past, and he is encouraging them to keep on doing that. And again, all of this is in the light of humility and submission. He says to, as he begins the, the verse, he says, as you have always obeyed, you would know, almost expect him to say, keep on obeying. He doesn't use those words, but that is what he is he's getting at here. Working out one's salvation is like talking about an ongoing obedience in this context. Uh, to work out here, that one of the examples I read is said the Greek word isn't like, if you think of working out in like a physical exercise way, I already have the muscles. To work out in the, in the Greek term there, it's, it really can only be translated as to, it's the sense of accomplishing something. That they are, are working out what they have been given in this way, it is, is we're building our sanctification. We are becoming more like Christ in obedience to his command. We aren't earning eternal life. We are growing to be more like him. We are accomplishing in this life the things that he has for us to accomplish. And fear and trembling. Believers should never fear. If Jesus promised me eternal life, if I believe in him for it, my believing in him assures that I know where I'm going because he said I would have eternal life if I believe in him. And that humility of needing him for that leads to an assurance that it isn't dependent on me, it's dependent on him, and I can serve him out of gratitude instead of proving my salvation. That fear and trembling is this, this righteous fear of the Lord in, in understanding how great he is and how small I am and how magnificent his grace is to me and what he has done for me. Uh, so often we think of fear as just respect. or That's not what he's... There is fear in serving the almighty God of the universe. That we don't have any fear of where we will spend eternity, but we have this fear in this life of wanting to serve him and not ourselves. That without that respect fear that we turn our eyes on ourselves. If we don't fear him, we worship ourselves. It reflects reverence for his awesomeness, respect for who he is. In verse 13, for it is God who is at work 
in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Just there in the preceding context, Paul had been urging his readers to, to obey and to do right, even though he wasn't there with them to motivate them. That's, that's why he's writing them. He's reminding them here that, that God is, isn't just at work with them, but in them. He's giving them the strength that they need that he would enable them to work in this way, in this carrying out this obedience. And that verse should be a real comfort to us, that if we submit to him, that he will work these things out. You know, Paul provided a lot of application just there in those last verses, but you know, this and bring it around to our lives, and again, I think it's, it's how we focus on who God is and how we let that affect us. And if we think that looking at, and they're brought up in the big idea, that God's love is clearly evident in the birth of Christ, and that should drive us to willing submission and imitation of Christ, that, that if the God that I am worshiping is so loving, as First John 4 says, that this is love, that I mean, he sent his son for us. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. All of these beautiful truths that show God's love that are encapsulated in the person of Jesus Christ, that that should move my heart to a place where I am willing to say what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will. As he was facing the cross and humiliation and being beaten, and again, most especially, spiritual separation from the Father. As he was sweating tears of blood, he said, not my will, but thy will. In our attempt to become like him, I think it has to start there with that humility, that willingness to carry out God's plans, that my plans for this life if they don't line up with his, they are not good plans. And that I can say in my own heart, not my will. But... So tomorrow morning when I wake up and I read the Christmas story, he's been around for over a year and I'm still so used to my girls. Uh, that needs to be the focus of my heart. When Gabriel comes to Joseph and Mary, when they go to Bethlehem, when the angels show up to the shepherds, when, when the wise men come seeking, who was it that was in that manger? The almighty God of the universe. And in John 1.14, John didn't say, and God made the word become flesh. He did it willingly because I am a sinner and I need him. And what a great opportunity Christmas is to share the beauty of the gospel because we understand gifts. God has given us the most perfect gift ever. If you're here today and you don't, Christmas has always just been a story and about the presence. Come talk to me. I'd love to, to share with you. But if you have friends and loved ones that don't know, share it. Let the truth of this story and of Jesus' submission change your heart to, I don't care what they think of me, like Mary and Joseph. Like Jesus, everything I'm about is about doing the will of the Father. Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. And Jesus lived that out perfectly. And he let God 
direct him and lead him, and in following him, he brings glory to God forever, and God has given that to him. And we have that opportunity to serve. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for, God, these words from Paul that were inspired by your spirit that speak so much truth to Jesus, that it adds, God, this depth to his birth and his willingness to submit to your plans. God, help us to always see your glory in, in the creation around us, in the joys that you give us, in our families, in your word, God, and in, in what you have revealed to us about yourself, and help us to to willingly submit, not be forced into yielding, but to, to use our lives to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray.